Radio Show brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping all businesses with their people-related decisions. They do that by giving clients access to the best human capital, due diligence and background checks available, unprospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. To learn more, simply visit www.peopleg2.com. Today, we're privileged to have with us the founder and president of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me. Again, my name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host for the next hour here on the Talent Talk Radio Show. We have a great lineup of guests, and, uh, well, today we have one guest uh, specifically, but we'll be looking forward to hearing all her uh, great insights uh, and all our insights from from the wonderful guests we've been having so far uh, and really have scheduled out throughout the year. So the way the show works is we feature a wide range of guests who care about talent management, leadership development, and company culture. So in the business world, talent really has a couple different meanings. And the first is how it relates to success and how really talented people achieve success. And the second is how talent relates to human resources and how HR leaders find the best candidates for their company. So even though there's a lot of crossover there, we kind of do segment those two out. But this show will explore those two areas, along with how talented individuals impact a company's culture. The guests on uh, Talent Talk uh, typically include CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR executives, coaches, consultants, just about anybody who has something to say, something good to say about uh, uh, talent, uh, you know, that are business leaders and are from, you know, emerging industries that we're really interested in. So what typically happens is I'm out at networking events and conferences, and I have the privilege of meeting these inspiring leaders. And I created this forum to have you listen on our dialogue and learn some practical advice on how to cultivate talent, develop leaders, manage culture, and most importantly, hopefully impact your own career in a positive way. Uh, I want to thank those of you tuning in live here every Tuesday. If you want to send a question to us uh, via Twitter, just uh, set it to at PeopleG2, use the hashtag TalentTalk. My producer, Mike, can feed me the best questions, and we'll kind of work them into the show. Also, don't forget, you can uh, hear the uh, show uh, on the podcast. Uh, on iTunes or Android. That's how most people tend to tune in. And we have over 122,000 of you that have subscribed to the podcast. And we thank all of you who are tuning in to listen, whether it's in the car, on the treadmill, at your kid's soccer practice, whatever it may be, we're happy you joined us. So let's get to our uh, our guest today, Linda Brenner. Uh, Linda is the founder and managing director of two companies, Design on Talent and also Skillsify. So Linda, thank you so much for being my guest today, and and welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So tell us all a little bit about yourself and, of course, your background here for for both these companies. I'd be happy to. Um, I uh, grew up in retail and in human resources. After uh, school, I worked for The Gap and then Pepsi and then Home Depot in a series of operations and talent management, and then talent acquisition roles. And about 10 years ago, after a series of jobs at Home Depot, I left and started this business, which is an HR consulting firm designed on talent. And about three years ago, I started Skillsify, which is an HR technology business. And both businesses complement one another. We help organizations improve their results in hiring and retention. So with Designs on Talent, I know your clients include some 
some other large and notable companies that I'm sure our listeners would be familiar with, you know, AT&T and Expedia, Coca-Cola, I mean, to name a few. So can you talk about what it is, what it's like helping these large companies with their talent strategies and, and talent acquisition processes? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think there's a common misconception uh, that I even used to have. I would go to conferences, and I would look at companies at the time. I was probably with a company like The Gap, which a lot of people would say is a huge company. But I'd look at bigger companies and say, yeah, it's easy for you to say. You have no idea. You're huge. You have hundreds of HR people. You have tons of resources. I think the misconception is is that in most cases, regardless of size, regardless of industry, there are not enough resources. People are trying to do a lot with not enough. So even a huge company like Coca-Cola or Home Depot, where you have thousands of HR professionals working throughout the organization, you have 400,000 employees. So it's all kind of relative. Everybody's got to do too much. It always seems like, yeah, I think you're right, you have this conception that, excuse me, perception that, that they have a very easy time at getting employees in the door and that they're not going to have a hard time. So, but I, and maybe that might be true for, you know, a low end perspective, but if you're looking at, at, you know, getting quality executives or you're looking at getting very skilled labor or even probably really good middle management, that may be even a bigger challenge for someone like those large organizations where people may or may not, you know, have the best impression about the organization or be worried about proper mobility or, you know, large corporate politics, things like that. So do you see that they kind of have their own challenges that are maybe unique to them and being so large, kind of the, you know, being gorillas in their industry? Yeah, I mean, it's well, you're touching on something else that's kind of interesting, which is this idea that big companies, big brands, cool, uh, well-known global um, personas have an easier time hiring. And... It reminds me, when you just said that, it reminds me of a conversation I had just yesterday with a guy who's a senior HR leader for a very well-known global brand. He has a resume that most of us would kill for. He could write his own ticket if he wanted to leave. Uh, and we were talking about what's next. And the idea there is he could obviously go to an even bigger company, even more global, but He's like, you know what, I, I think my next move is like a disruptive, uh, up-and-coming company, you know, mid-cap, small, that's mm-hmm. still evolving. So I think the world is different. Uh, a lot of people look at these big companies, and I, there's probably for as many want to work there. There are other people that are just thinking, you know what, it seems bureaucratic, it seems like been there, done that, something totally different is what I want. So it really just depends on the candidate. Well, now we're kind of getting into the challenge of trying to retain uh, your talent. So, you know, I'm sure that's that's always a big topic for companies, uh, especially, you know, if a large company has spent a lot of money training and moving people up in the organization and having maybe a good succession plan, they want to make sure they're retaining people. So can you talk a little bit about the differences, if there are any, uh, in the challenges that you see small and medium-sized companies having versus large companies having and trying to retain, you know, their, their best talent. And, and maybe that's part of the, what they're, you know, doing with your company, Designs on Top. Maybe that's part of what, what you're offering. Maybe you could kind of give us a little tie in there. 
Yeah, well, again, I think it's kind of counterintuitive in some ways. You know, you're right. Big companies often do spend a lot of money on things that could be construed as retention efforts. Um, not construed. They are meant to drive talent management and retention of people. So it's engagement surveys, it's leadership development programs, it's high potential recognition, it's rotational programs, it's all kinds of things. And you're right, a lot of small companies don't have that. They don't have the resources, the infrastructure, the people to build and maintain those kinds of programs. But what the small companies have that the big companies don't is sometimes they have a founder-led culture. You know, they have a very close connection to the person that perhaps built the business, is building the business, and having that interaction with senior leaders is really inspiring, can be very inspiring in some companies. Obviously, you get to be a huge company, you don't have that interaction anymore, and you've really lost that. And then it becomes a challenge of how do we replicate this from leader to leader to leader through maybe thousands of leaders of an organization, and it becomes very tough. Yeah, and I think you're kind of touching a little bit on this idea of really good culture. And, you know, there are some examples of big companies that have good cultures, but most of the really kind of up-and-coming and and really exciting cultures that are occurring are those founder-led. They're still, you know, they're, they're not mega companies yet, and that's kind of where it's exciting. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to to do a lot of speaking on this topic of culture. And a lot of the observations we've been able to make is when you have that really, really strong culture, whether it's founder-based, whether it's just, you know, really like maybe a, a Google or, um, you, you know, someone that's got a pretty distinguishable culture, it really changes the game in, 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 as it goes to retaining talent, getting talent, and, and driving your organization. So that's really interesting you're kind of bringing that up here because... Someone like that gentleman you mentioned earlier looking to maybe go into a disruptive company is really not, is, is very counterintuitive to what most people might do in their careers. But I mean, how awesome could that be for that company that's going to pick that person up to really help them reach, you know, their goals and, and make a huge difference for their company, for their employees, right. for their customers, for everyone involved, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this debate or the conversation about culture is fascinating to me because companies will often say we're innovative. We, we do a lot of work in assessment and development, and when we do work around talent and talent strategy, we want to know what's your company strategy? What's the mission? What Do you have a competency model that you ascribe to, subscribe to? I, we want to know these things because that points us in the direction of, how can they build sustainable pipelines of talent that meet their needs? So we get into these conversations about culture and, and competencies a lot. And sometimes we hear companies say, oh, we're very innovative and we're this and we're that. But when you're actually then working later in the trenches trying to build a new talent acquisition process or implementing technology or putting their people through an assessment center, you see what someone on my team calls kind of cultural, archaeological artifacts of what it really is. And, uh, you know, I think we can all relate to the company that says, oh, we're very innovative, but there's a real risk-averse culture. People are scared to make decisions. People bounce things 
to different bosses to weigh in on. There's debates. It's a consensus culture. And it's the exact opposite of what an innovative business needs to be doing. So that's the dichotomy I find fascinating is what we say our culture is, but what it really and truly is. So it's often different. Yeah, yeah, and that's um, it, it's fascinating. I, I have opportunity to ask a lot of entrepreneurs how you know they think about their culture. Usually, you know, newer entrepreneurs or, or those in companies that aren't maybe really kind of reaching the goals or reaching where they want to go. We'll say, oh, we have a great culture. And like, well, what is that? What does that mean? You know, and, and oh, everyone really likes what we're doing, and everyone's really into it. And it's like, oh, you don't even understand what culture is. <laughs> you know, culture right, is, what's exactly. just, is what's driving this your, your your the boat when you're not looking. You know, when you're not standing over the top of someone, what's driving it? Is it you know risk aversion? Is it they want to make mistakes? Is it like you said, consent? You know, uh, decisions by consensus. I mean, there's all these other things that are happening that can really be problematic. So I mean, we right. kind of go back here to the, some of the work you've been doing with some of the Fortune 500 companies. I know you offer a, a skills assessment that's you know, specifically for human resources, which is kind of unique. So could you share a little bit about that process and perhaps what some of the, the key skills that these you know, big companies need to have to ensure that you know, they have the right HR people in place? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, a little backdrop to this conversation is all the work that's been done really going on 15 years now around this, I'm putting finger quotes here, you can't see it, HR transformation. So we've transformed and it's really not working or we're about to do HR transformation again or it, in my view, companies that have been through HR transformation, what they've been through is more like They've implemented a big H, uh, HCM technology uh, to kind of rapidly deliver and drive efficiencies in administrative work, and often they've reorged. So they've created a shared service center. They've created centers of excellence. So we have our OD center of excellence, maybe TA, maybe comp, whatnot, learning. And then we have fewer HR generalists in the field, in the business. And they might be, you know, one attached to a business leader and then maybe some, a few supporting them. But the bottom line is there's fewer HR generalists in the business, certainly than there was 10 years ago. And you've got these shared services and, center, and centers of excellence that have to work together very differently. What we find in a lot of companies is they've done the reorg, they've changed people's title, and they've implemented technology. But they haven't define new processes, they haven't clarified roles and responsibilities, and most problematic, in my view, is there are no clear measures of what good looks like, particularly for individuals. And so what we've brought to the market that I think that there's a great need for is, you know what, we're not going to solve all that stuff necessarily, but we can, what we can do is help HR leaders and their folks um, really be aware of what they need to excel at in order to drive success. And what are those things you ask? What are those? Well, that's the ability to lead through change, the ability to make data-driven decisions, the ability to partner strategically to drive results. So we've built a competency model in partnership with University of Georgia IO Psychology Department around HR, uh, best-in-class HR. And not to say if you saw it, you wouldn't think, hmm, that's sort of similar to 
Dave Ulrich's and others that are out there, there is certainly some overlap. And what we want to do with that and what we've done and help companies do is we put people through a series of simulations to immerse them in situations that allow them to demonstrate their skills in these areas and to be observed and evaluated and receive very comprehensive feedback immediately about their strengths and the areas they most need to improve. Well, it sounds uh, like you got quite a process there. And, you know, we're just come up here to take our first commercial break. So when we come back, I want to find out from you. Kind of sounds like what organizations are doing, If I'm, and I'm probably oversimplifying, so you can tell me when we come back here, but it's like saying, hey, I need a new boyfriend, so I'm going to take the one I have and put new clothes on him and change his job, <laughs> and, but it's still the same person who I don't really like or is not treating me very nicely, and, and suddenly I expect a different result, and, and what they really, really need is a, a fundamental change. So we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll, I'd love to get your, your thoughts on that when we come back. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results, a cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge with the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days, all with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. We're here with uh, Linda Brenner, and she's the founder and managing director of Design on Talent and uh, Skillsify. And we, uh, right before the break, here we were just talking about uh, how her company helps uh, HR, uh, you know, divisions really deal with their proper skill sets and making sure that they have kind of the right people and the right uh, performers in place. And Kind of left you with with an idea here. Maybe I've oversimplified, but what, what were your thoughts on, on kind of how I phrased that as we closed out there before the commercial? Well, I would say that analogy is as bad as mine, which I always say we're rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Um, <laughs> yours is a little bit more maybe sexist, but either way, they're not either really way. great analogies. <laughs> I realize uh, we, we probably, I certainly need a new one, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's We have a new org chart, and we have people in different boxes. So we haven't clarified what is their new role, uh, how are ways of working evolving, and what does good look like, and how do we know when we've gotten there. 
Um, and that's the problem. Now, with that said, and my thinking has evolved a lot on this, we do not solve any problems by doing wide-scale rifts, in my belief. So we want to transform HR. We want to completely change our talent acquisition model. Uh, sometimes the first uh, solution leaders go to is, I need all renew recruiters, or I've got to get rid of these HR people. It's exactly like putting in a new technology on top of really bad or undefined processes. Bringing in new HR people to replace old, finger quote, bad HR people without clarifying what is the role, what are the metrics, what are the processes, where does their, you know, where do they start versus other teams begin and if, if none of that is defined, even the greatest people in the role are going to struggle and perhaps probably fail. So it's it's a it's a complicated problem. Yeah, it, it certainly does sound like it. And how does you know you're doing this on a very large scale with, with these big HR divisions? But even at you know let's say a mid cap level, do you kind of see that it's the same challenge, or do they have a, a slightly less? Uh, is it less complicated if you know if they're slightly smaller? I mean, does does it really ramp up with, with the scale? Is that what the, you see the biggest problem? I think that the core problem is exactly the same, which is if roles and responsibilities and measures of success are unclear, then we're going to just migrate towards the stuff we've always done or the stuff that we like to do, and there's going to be no link no link whatsoever to what drives business value. I'm just going to be doing the stuff I like to do. I'm a recruiter. I don't like your, the, this ATS. I don't like all the clicking I have to do. I'm a people person. I want to talk to candidates. I want to be out there having coffee. I'm going to try to do that if you don't define a different role for me and, and hold me accountable in a you know, in a fair way to what good looks like. So I'm, and same with administrative type HR people. I've always done, you know, I've always helped people with their problems and done things for my managers, and I'm going to keep doing that. So it's hard. It sounds pretty universal. I mean, you're you're really dealing specifically with HR and that being your kind of wheelhouse of expertise, but what you're saying is very applicable to a- any department within a company. I mean, oh, absolutely. Yeah. We, what does good look like? I mean, that's that's a really simple way to to kind of evaluate what you're doing and and trying to understand if you know maybe you're you're stepping in the wrong direction. Um, right. We, well, and it's it's. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, please. Well, I was just going to say to your point, we work more than anything. We work in talent acquisition, people, process, technology. And to your exact point about, well, if people don't know what they're doing, that, that could be happening anywhere. We see this a lot with hiring managers. Their role in the recruiting process is often undefined. So I'm a hiring manager and you're my recruiter. I want to see every resume. I want to look at the job post. I want you to post it on Monster. I want, I want to know exactly what questions are you asking people, whatever. And you might work with another hiring manager who works in a completely different way. So, yes, it's possible that it's happening everywhere in a business where people are not 100% clear on what am I supposed to be doing here. Right, right. Well, you talked about uh, some of the ways in which uh, we're out there trying to recruit and, you know, in the business market, 
way the job openings and, and the way the recruiting talent is really different today than it used to be. So uh, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges in recruitment and talent acquisitions happening right now? Well, you mean external to the marketplace or internal within recruiting functions? You know, I think internally, like, you, you know, it used to be we would, you know, put an ad in the newspaper or, you know, mouth to mouth. And now there's all these different mediums out there. There's different uh, opportunities. There's different challenges. So what for the, you know, average company that you're working for, as those things have kind of drastically changed, what are you seeing as still being a big challenge for companies in dealing with that? It's a great question. I'll preface this by saying I think talent acquisition is one of the hardest roles that I personally am aware of in business today. It is, uh, there are so many moving parts. There's people, process, technology, integration, vendors, process, metrics, compliance. Everybody is a stakeholder. Everybody touches talent acquisition, either as a hiring manager or a senior leader or internal employees that are trying to apply to different jobs. So everybody's got a point of view about how it should be done. And even when it's done great, it still could always be quicker, cheaper, better, in theory. So it's a very, very tough job. I think the one commonality we see, I've seen for years, 10 years doing this work, talent acquisition process improvement, is, and I think this is unique to talent acquisition, is a lack of a defined process. How is this supposed to work? How is our executive recruiting supposed to work? Step by step by step. What metrics are we tracking? Um, what tools and technology support the process? And likewise, how is hourly? How is hourly recruiting supposed to work? How is professional recruiting? How is our college campus effort supposed to be? Um, instead, what we see is there's a loose use of the technology and everybody's kind of doing their own thing. And a lot of recruiters feel their number one responsibility is to please the hiring manager. And um, But in the end, without a standard, scalable, measurable process, you cannot track anything. You cannot drive continuous improvement. You cannot be efficient, and ultimately, I would argue, you absolutely cannot be that effective. So is it just a crappy process they've put in place, or do you think it's a misguided attempt at giving people autonomy? Oh, what a good question. <laughs> I don't think it's a crappy process, because that would imply that there is a process. Oh, okay. <laughs> I would just say there's a great lack of a strategy around what is talent acquisition supposed to be doing for our business? How does it link to the value that our business is trying to build? That's the first thing. And then there's no um, alignment between senior leaders and HR leaders. Then there is often no alignment between HR leaders and talent acquisition leaders and recruiters. So it's just a game of operator. Everybody's trying to do their own thing. We ask recruiters, recruiting leaders, HR leaders, what does this look like in TA? If, if it was a home run, what results would you be seeing? And the answers are range from people would stop yelling at me, I would get requisitions filled on t or quicker, to just completely vague, nebulous, and disjointed measures of success. And that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I know um, when you work with uh, business leaders and HR executives kind of developing this stronger talent strategy, um, do you tend to see common themes, though, that you kind of run into with these businesses and they're not doing in these areas? I mean, you talked about defining what's, you know, what what does good look like and a little bit what you're saying. I, I, I might even categorize as I've used this statement of if wave a magic wand, you know, how did, how, what does it look like when, when you're done waving that magic wand? What does this look like? I mean, it's kind of a similar way in which you're presenting it. So is there, is there really specific things and, and, and themes that need to be addressed, or is this, does it tend to be fairly situational? I'm getting the impression it sounds like it's pretty similar from case, case to case where you're seeing these problems, but maybe there's some, also some variance there in the companies that you might share. I think it is... Uh sort of across the board in, in at least one respect. And, and here's a little bit of a story. You know, 30 years ago, the value of companies, the value of what companies were trading at, uh, the market value of companies was basically equal to that which they had on the books. So tangible assets. So we're TWA or we're General Motors or we're Bethlehem Steel, you know, big companies 30, 35 years ago. And, and our stocks are trading at basically the value of what uh, the book, you know, what the book value of our company is, our, our equipment and our machineries and our air, airplanes and our hard assets. Well, fast forward till today, and guess what? A company like Facebook, the value of the tangible assets on the books of Facebook is almost nothing compared to the value of the company, compared to what the stock is being traded at. In fact, with Facebook, about 95% of the value of the company is intangible assets. It's not on the books. And what are intangible assets? Proprietary data, IP, brand, customer reach, global footprint, these are all things that are intangible assets, but what shareholders are paying for. And our belief is, and I think this is very much fact-based, is all these intangible assets are in and of themselves inert. A brand, the Coca-Cola brand, is nothing without brand managers constantly managing it, expanding it, evolving it. So our position is is that these intangible assets are powered by nothing other than people, very critical roles in key functions in the business. Not every single role, but specific roles. So what we're trying to help companies do is identify the value of these intangible assets in the business. First of all, what are they? And how valuable are they? How much does our business strategy depend on them growing and evolving and getting better? And what are the talent implications of that? And so we have a new book coming out called Talent Valuation, and it's all about taking a very financial-based look at the talent implications of the business and how to over-invest in the parts of the business that are going to drive the greatest value, sort of very counterintuitive to tra- tra- traditional HR approaches. Well, it's a bit like an 80-20 rule. I mean, it's, you know, if you can put 80% of your resources into that 20% that's going to have the biggest bang for your buck, you can really kind of see some pretty significant changes in development instead of trying to put, you know, equal resources across the board. 
Um, exactly. That's actually a great way. Of, I thought you were going to say the opposite, 80 or 20% of our whatever. But you're right. It, the idea of putting 80% of our HR resources into 20% of the roles and really measuring the value those investments have on that. I love how you said that. Yeah, that's the uh, the old 80-20 rule. I think it goes back a long, long way. I, I'm certainly not the inventor of it. but uh, No, but in this context, I mean, right, because... Yeah. Because what HR's approach typically is, and I I grew up in HR, I'm not disparaging HR, we're just used to doing it this way, is not the 80-20, but the peanut butter, we're going to spread all our resources as thinly as we can to drive equity, I'm using finger quotes, and parity, so we're going to do engagement surveys for everyone, we're going to do basic management training for every single manager. We're going to do, you know, whatever it is. We're going to treat every requisition in the hiring process as essentially equal. We believe that is very misguided, and it's it's not sustainable. Yeah, you might even have even the worst situation in some really bad HR departments where they're spending 80% of their resources, time, and energy on 20% of, you know, problem child. Uh, yeah, that is actually probably true, yeah. <laughs> we, we see that a lot, you know, they... They do a really bad job of hiring, and they just spend all their time and energy just dealing with that person, and then how to get rid of that person, or right. that person leaves all the aftermath, and it's just you know instead of you know really focusing on their stars and who can really make a huge change and, and, and be able to measure that because I've heard this from a lot of a lot of authors, a lot of great thought leaders out there. I mean, if, you, if you can't measure it in some way, it's really hard to, to make any changes to something, and I think that's kind of what I'm getting from what you're saying is. Having these really good processes in place and having ways to measure by knowing how what is it supposed to look like, what is good supposed to be, can you measure it, and then can you say, well, yeah, this is working, or no, it's not working, so right. that you can make real sustainable changes for your organization. Right, right. Well, and I, and I think if you're going to do that, and if you're going to have that working in an organization, you're going to need some really good leaders to, to really keep that going. So maybe we'll talk a little bit here about leadership development. And uh, what do you feel is kind of key to developing leaders in today's workforce? I would say what's key is not doing it like we've always done it in the past, where, again, we're just kind of applying the same model to all leaders. We might pick a few high-potential types or certain leaders at certain levels get different, like all VPs and above get super-duper, you know, training. I just, I think that model is broken. I think the other big thing that we have to address that I think these learning organizations, for the most part, are, are slow, are kind of slow to react to is the fact that being a leader of creative knowledge workers is very different than leading a team of workers in the traditional sense, like industrial-type workers, like I'm managing a call center, I'm managing a team of uh, a restaurant shift workers, versus I am managing a creative team in PR or marketing or IT or research and development or engineers. We, we cannot apply the same model of work constraints successfully to creative workers. It, it, it's illogical to say you have to sit in your cube from 8 to 5, you have to, you know, do this and do that, because it's not about the time like it is in a manual job. It is about the output, the creative 
development of intangible assets, of intellectual capital, of, of patents and of products and of databases. So it's just how those leaders lead those kinds of teams is a completely different beast. Yeah, it's a really complicated process. And I think you're right. If you, know, you get great quality out of somebody, but yet you're going to say, well, you have to be sitting in your cubicle from eight to five. You, you can't you know, do that work from this area where it's going to be better or with, over in this team on this day because that's going to help you get your work done better or right. what have you. We see these kind of ridiculous constraints because people kind of have a hard time getting their head around that. And, and we've dealt with that and taken my company almost completely virtual and we've really had to kind of undo some of our own thought processes mm-hmm. and thinking and, you know, what, what, how do you measure if someone's done a good job and how do you make sure that... Um, you know, people are working and communicating, and yeah, you know, we used to just all be able to stand in a one big giant room and have like a standing meeting if I wanted to. And you know, now now that isn't possible, and it's actually helped us be a lot better at communicating. Interesting. <laughs> um, when, we're, when we're all together, we just assumed everyone was listening. So you know, which of course they weren't. But right. So I'm, I'm wondering, what, what do you, what do you guys do over there with designs on talent to really? develop your own employees and, and strengthen your leadership on a day-to-day basis? You know, it's a great question. A lot, most of us, probably 90% of the team all came from pretty big companies, pretty big jobs. And so we, I think we all feel like we paid our dues, you know, sitting in a car every day for two hours commuting to be sitting in our office to sit through meetings and now we're, we work entirely virtually, and we have regular team meetings where we do come together, and we are we have constant like I won't, I won't call them ad hoc because that makes it sound like it happens like this morning, and we're like let's all get together, but we'll have project based team meetings a lot. Most of the team actually is in Atlanta. We're kind of far flung within the greater Atlanta area. But we work together when we need to, uh, which is frequently on different projects. And then we have these team meetings that we also we also have. And, you know, we're fortunate in our Skillsify business, we have a really cool self-directed learning and development app um, that allows people to complete a web-based self-assessment and then to pull from a huge library of bite-sized, multimedia, manageable, self-directed tasks. So if I want to get better at collaboration, because we're an all-virtual team, Skillsify will show me here's 40 ideas of things I can do right now to practice and, and improve collaborative management and to get better at that. So I can drag and drop this idea here onto my plan. I can work with Carrie. We can work virtually on this. So we all have access to that because we own it. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about uh, Skillsify and, ha- and how that works since, since you brought that up. Sure, yes. Yeah. Skillsify was purely an outgrowth of being incredibly annoyed with seeing the same problems everywhere we worked and everywhere we worked before even starting this business. So we decided we could see a better way, we could envision it, we had actually worked on it in some environments. And we were just, we were determined to web enable some solutions. So today we have three applications, each of which address a persistent problem that 
impedes companies' ability to hire and retain. So we have a job description builder, we have an interview guide builder, and we have self-directed uh, learning and development, which we call skill builder. And the framework of all three is a company's competency model. So at Chick-fil-A, for instance, you can use the job description builder. It links to their competency model. And once you've built the job description and down maybe a couple weeks later, you have some candidates coming in to interview for that job, the interview guide builder links to the fundamental skills, knowledge, and abilities that are outlined in the job description. So the interview guide builder tees up the right questions, but also defines what a good answer looks like for the, the interviewer. So we define for every single question in our enormous library, we define here's what a great answer looks like, here's what a meh answer looks like, and here's what a bad answer looks like. And we use data to help recruiters then lead robust debrief meetings and ultimately to help the company make better selection decisions. And I love that really simplified you know, it's like a happy face, a meh face, and a sad face. If you can kind of yeah. simplify it, and that, that that's how we do our customer satisfaction surveys. We ask our clients, you know, which, which one of these three faces describes how we did in the last 30 days? And, and we, we get very, very specific feedback that helps us, you know, know if we're doing well or we need to congratulate employees or if we need to tighten something up somewhere. And yep. when you when you keep it that simple, people get it. And people can participate, and they don't feel overwhelmed, or they don't feel like, you know, it's going to get misconstrued, or it's complicated, or anything like that. So I, I really love the way you, sounds like you're doing that. It can really, really help organizations and help everyone, top to bottom, to be able to participate in that process. Right, right. We're, we're trying to help companies evolve from an interviewing process that is often unknown, we really, we don't know what these managers are asking in interviews, and we just get kind of a, he- a thumbs up or a thumbs down after this candidate leaves. Um, we've got to make the process better, more database, and more linked to what, again, I sound like broken record, I realize, but what good looks like for this new role that we're hiring for. So uh, that's one of the things we're trying to do with the tool. Yeah, and when you don't have anything like that that's in place, all you get is whether or not that hiring manager or whoever's asking those questions liked the person who they met with. And to be exactly. quite honest, that's not really the best criteria to decide whether or not you should hire somebody. <laughs> you know? Absolutely right. Um, you might be hiring somebody in a job that personality skills are not really top of the list, and yet you may not like, you know, they might not come, you know, they can come off as, as well. They're not a you know, a typical salesperson or a customer service agent or something where they're going right. to have a personality that you expect to be bubbling and connecting and all that. So it's amazing. Right. If, but if, it, it sounds like if you have this process in place and you say, okay, this is what we expect a good answer to look like for these positions, for these people. And did they do that or not? That's their criteria. Not whether or not did they wear clothes that you liked or did they smile at you or did you connect with them personally, which may or may not be things that have some importance for some people, but in general, right? It, you know, are they giving you really in-depth answers that really show that, yeah, they're going to be good for culture, yeah, they're going to be good for the job, yeah, they're going to be great for our, our, our customers, and, you know, are they going to get along and, and be able to be successful in an organization? And that's really what's the most important, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. The, the other thing that I think is interesting is our belief that hiring managers won't often say, hey, do you got an interview guide? Or, hey, what should I be asking this candidate? A lot of them are just not going to say, I don't really know how to interview. I've really never seen a good interview. And I went to interviewing training 17 years ago when I was 23. Um, they're not necessarily going to reveal that. And the other thing is, is companies, when they tried to do these big, broad interviewing training programs, they're just, they're flawed. It cannot be just in time for everybody. You know, some managers hire once a year, some hire constantly. And so our tool also is really intended to provide just-in-time feedback in the moment if it's needed for uh, interviewers uh, with candidates in front of them. Yeah. Well, I, I wish I would have known this. My, my very first jobs was when I uh, started working at a hotel as a director of operations, and they were just opening. It was, you know, when I started, it was a soft open, so we're hiring almost all the people. And I did, from the time I started to the time I left, about 3,000 interviews. And no one ever told me what <laughs> I was supposed to be asking. No one ever told me what I was, you know, anything. I had to just do it. And the reason I did, I started, all interviews started going through me because they liked the people that I ended up picking. But that wasn't very, you can't really replicate that process. And when I left, there wasn't anything there for them to, to grab onto. Um, it was just, you know, my own personal connection with the people or whatever I was seeing. But what you're talking about is a process that you can bring people in and out of that can be relied upon, can be controlled, um, can be modified if needed by leadership on a very simple basis, but it's probably something that's fairly difficult to put in place that they need a company like yours to maybe do that, right? Well, yeah, I would say, of course, I would say that. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I think I think the added value we bring is we've been around the block. Like, we've actually done this. We've been recruiting leaders. We've been talent management leaders. We've been hiring managers, and we've been candidates. And we've worked with so many companies we know what is flawed about some of these very common processes around, you know, typical structured interview guides. And, and an example of that is lots of companies give you a bunch of questions to ask, but they don't give you any indication as to what a great answer looks like. Mm -hmm. And this was an epiphany I had years ago when we were observing managers doing interviews and one question was, tell me about a time you had a conflict with, with an employee. And the candidate said, I've never had one. And later, the manager said, that was such an awesome answer. Like, this guy's obviously really good at managing conflict and leading a team. And we were just like, or he's lying. <laughs> so we, we just realized you can give someone 100 different questions to ask, but without some kind of calibration about, you know, what are we looking for here? It's kind of pointless. Right. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you, you got very grounded on, on what's happening, and I know you kind of talked about having a really good background of, of kind of putting in your dues there with a lot of the other companies before starting your own. So I'm wondering if, uh, you know, maybe you're reading a particular book right now to kind of continue that, uh, keeping your, your finger on the pulse and you, of what's happening in HR, and maybe you might share what that book is and, and to our audience and, and why you're reading it. Okay, I'm going to be very honest with you. We, we just finished writing a book that is now available pre-order on Amazon, this talent valuation book, 
And right now what I'm reading is Stephen King, 112263, about a guy that travels back in time to thwart the assassination of Kennedy. It's really good. But I'm taking a break. I'm taking a unusual break from my business reading um, litany. We have had the gamut of answers to this question, which is why we love asking all of our guests this question, because some are give us this, you know, maybe a book they hadn't heard of or one that just came out. Uh, certainly, I think people should check out the one you just finished writing. But we also get these great insights on, you know, what kind of fiction are they reading? How, you know, how are you keeping your mind, whether it's sharp or giving it a vacation or you have a little bit of a rest from from that? That's very, very important to the overall process. So certainly is a, I think it's a great answer. I am one that, uh, <laughs> Thank you. You know, it, 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 it's just the way it is. I mean, not not everyone's reading you know, the whatever business book that everyone's reading all the time. I mean, it's, it's a part of our natural process right. of kind of being human beings. So, well, I think is, going back to, oh, I'm sorry, going back to the topic of culture and everything, I think one thing that is true about our team is that we are candid, honest, transparent in our dealings with each other, with our clients, we don't play games, and you ask me what I'm reading, I'm actually going to tell you, even though I might not be impressing too many people with Stephen King. Hey, if you're in your culture, you can have communication and transparency. It sounds like you guys are doing a great job, and that's a huge, huge part to, I think, being successful, along with the other, all the other great knowledge you have on, on how to really deal with talent and help your clients. Um, Thank you. It's been a real pleasure uh, talking with you today. I'm glad we got to spend a whole hour together. And, and learning so much uh, from you and uh, about what you guys are doing over there. Uh, if, if people are interested in learning more about uh, either of your companies, what's the, what's the best way for them to do that? Best way to do it is hit our website, designsontalent.com, designs is plural, and skillsify, like skillsify.com. So, yeah, and you can connect with us there. Well, fantastic. I'm sure people will do that, and we really appreciate you uh, being here on the show. Thank Hopefully you. you come back at some point and give us uh, some more great insight. Would love to. It was a pleasure. That's about all the time we have for today's show. Thank you again to Linda, Linda Brenner for joining me here for a full hour on Talent Talk. Tune in live next week at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. My guest will include Marty Nolan. He's the VP of HR for Sears Holdings, and uh, Jonna, Donna, excuse me, uh, Shilder. She's an executive coach uh, with Glacier Point Solutions. Until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio Show brought to you by People G2.